Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When I was in New York, when I was dedicated to the cause of Lucifer, I was at that point a seventh generation of I was laying there, practically, and I had her hold me as if I was me. I couldn't talk, I couldn't open my eyes, I, I believe my eyes were all right back in my head. There was evidence of human sacrifice on this fight. One of my first questions I asked was, God, Guys, we're here back back on Conspiranormal, continuing the uh, Marathon Paradigm Symposium. A very no- noisy Conspiranormal yeah. episode. Mm. And uh, Luke is back. He's done from uh, <laughs> vagabonding around the uh, city of Minneapolis. <laughs> that was a blast. <laughs> we'll have to talk about your adventure later. <laughs> but we have with us right now um, another uh, speaker here at the symposium, Mr. Ed Nightingale. And uh, we just met Ed here in the last couple of days. Uh he had a presentation. You actually kind of started the whole thing off on yeah, Friday. Friday morning. Yeah. Um, and this is some interesting stuff. Uh, very similar in many ways to Randall Carlson's work and to Laird Scranton's work, except Ed is looking at astronomical alignments. And let's kind of briefly, because um, I really want to have you on, I really want to study this stuff and then get you on the show at another point. We can kind of go into more depth. But I kind of want to talk for the next 20 minutes or so about your 
material and about what it means and what let's talk a little bit about what kind of started your interest in this okay great well thanks for having me no problem um, I'm, a, I'm a woodworker and uh, I've done that all my life been real interested in architecture and design I draw you know my own plans and, and I, I was always interested in Giza to begin with and uh, just at a point about 1996 I I uh, had an idea that I thought I had figured out like the design of Giza and, and were from an architect's point of view how they would have designed it and uh, I had an opportunity to go over with John West um, of, of the Sphinx fame there and right. went a trip with him and I went to look to see if I was maybe right and if there was a point at which uh, this complex was created um, for instance if you're going to build a big complex like that the first thing you got to do is stick one stick in the ground as, as to where you're going to start building and then all measure would, would come off of that one point. Um, and I went there, and lo and behold, right where I suspected there might be this point from which they created this complex, and Giza we're looking at as a whole complex, not just individual pyramids built by, um, there was a, a grand plan there is what I'm saying, that all the, the, the structures on the plateau have a reason. And, and each of those individual structures points out certain numbers and certain angles and positions and and it was all a meaningful thing that it was encoding this knowledge of some kind so anyhow i did find this point to much to my amazement and and i was pretty excited i said wow you know that right there where i thought i would find a point i found a like a three and a half or four inch borehole right in the bedrock and it was, I could see it was at least two feet deep. This uh, is on the Great Pyramid? On, on, it was actually in, in front, it's, it was at the head of the, the uh, causeway that runs from the center okay. pyramid to the Sphinx. It's in that temple right right there at the beginning of that. And which if you look at it and you're looking at it as um, um, from east in the east to west direction, it looks like the hand of the clock. And that's what really got me thinking that the angled causeway right there looks like it's in the center and it looks like a hand of a clock. That's why I looked there and lo and behold, there was this point. So that uh, was where it started. And I went back and, and you know, it took several years to develop that, Max, actually about 10 years because all I had in 1996 or 97, actually it was, um, all we had then was survey data. So I could use Petri or coal, and I could go, and, and as a drafts person, I had uh, AutoCAD, so I was able to do a full-scale plot of the, the survey <laughs> and then just use survey information. So it looked to me like uh, some things really started to make real sense, except the, the, the smaller Pyramid of the Three and the Great Pyramid seemed to be off just a little bit, and, and it really just drove me nuts. I couldn't believe that, man, if these were just moved a little bit, all of a sudden we'd have this magical Rubik's Cube beautiful puzzle of numbers. But these pyramids just don't quite work, so my theories don't work. So it wasn't until 2006 that I was able to obtain a high-resolution uh, highly accurate satellite image of Giza. Matter of fact, the image that I got was actually used for a topography map for the Egyptian government. 
It was a quick bird satellite image, and I contacted the, the satellite imaging corporation who, who took the, the picture, or the, the image, and um, asked them about the accuracy of these, this image from a surveying point of view. If a surveyor were to plot this out, how accurate is that image? So he, he wrote me, and I have that, that uh, um, endorsement that, and statement that this was highly accurate to within 10 inches. Okay, and that's huge. Wow. That's even more accurate than some of the, the survey data. There was, there was more discrepancies in different surveys, but, and this is mainly between the pyramids. The, right. the pyramids themselves, they had fairly, you know, there's fairly good data on that, and I don't dispute really any of it. Um, it was really just the distance of these two pyramids. So once I had this satellite image, I was able to plot it, and lo and behold, they did not agree, the satellite image did not agree with the survey by uh, what was odd to me that they were very exact numbers that, that, that related to this, this, this template that were encoded. Like the, the third pyramid was, was only moved in one direction. It was moved west on the survey. I think it was moved west like 27 feet. And we're talking, I got accuracy to 10 inches, but we're talking 27 feet difference here. But what's really interesting is 27, as I found out later, was a major number in this whole um, puzzle, this mathematical puzzle that encodes measure, uh, the measure of the earth, the measuring system, the music system. It's all there, perfectly encoded. But anyhow, these numbers that they were off, the Great Pyramid, I think, was off nine feet. I think it was to the west than it should have been in, in this ideal model that I had had put together that would a, a really good analogy for this is a Rubik's cube of numbers like if you've got all the the little numbers in the right place all of a sudden you have this beautiful uh, har- harmonious puzzle that all fits together and the numbers match just like the colors on a Rubik's cube but if you take one click and you turn it all of a sudden your puzzles doesn't work anymore. Right, so that's exactly what yeah. the case is here. So if I designed this puzzle and I wanted to keep people from uh, uh, figuring the puzzle out, the easiest thing I could do is take a survey and just tweak two of the pyramids. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden our Rubik's Cube is no longer a beautiful, perfect puzzle. It's, so you it's a confused this? numerical thing that there's little pieces and parts but nobody gets the big picture. So you think that this survey was deliberately yes, and I I, I will gladly go and and stand. I've got a very nice presentation put together that, that details the surveys, not only of Petrie but of coal and satellite evidence and and Petrie's own data, which is really interesting. Here, I want to make a point. There's only one well that that's available that I can tell there's only one like drawing of that Petrie actually did a hand drawn plan plan view of the pyramid complex and it's it's pretty well available on the internet but if you take that image which has no numbers on it but it is a, a you know a proportional drawing that he made if you lay that over the satellite image it works beautiful it's perfect yeah. But if you give his the numbers that he gives in between there and put that on, there's 27 feet over here and there's nine feet off there. So yes, I'm saying, and I will gladly debate 
anyone who would care to that um, Petri data in the dimensions between the pyramids was deliberately changed in order to uh, confuse the puzzle. So what are the numbers that we're working with here? What well, is a, what what is this is is it some kind of mathematical equation, some kind of geometrical pattern that's on the ground? Yes, that's what what it is, but what what they're doing there is they are they are taking scientific knowledge yeah. and encoding it. And and one of the first things that's that comes within this. Now, what I found within there is a coordinate system. It's an 8x8 eight eight grid and of numbers. And if you can imagine on the left side of the of an 8x8 eight eight square, if you were to make a doubling uh, set of numbers starting at 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, down the left side, okay. across the top, we're going 3, 9, 27, etc. across the tops. So now we have a square grid of coordinates, 8x8 eight eight with a doubling system down the left, tripling across the top. Now there's coordinates in there we can go you know, uh, four down and three across, you know, and do the math, and right there's your coordinate, and there's numbers. But within that, there is a scale. If we go seven down and seven across and, and do an angled scale within that coordinate system, we find with within that scale going up uh, diagonally now within this square is, is where the m- measuring system is actually found. And like one of the the main numbers in this is 432. There's a lot of uh, understanding of the number 432 being significant in sacred geometry and and actually musical tunings. And being a musician, that 432, my attention, because 432 was an ancient tuning that was used. Now we use 440 as a a tuning standard. um, Which was a... Unrelated that that was uh, changed because it's more dissonant. Yes, yes. Yeah, go ahead if you want it's, to add to that. Um, I don't want to blame the Nazis. I think it wasn't yes, them, though. Yes, Okay, I guess I do want to blame the Nazis there. <laughs> well, that, that was that was where it started, just Goebbels. But eventually it was England that actually finally made the final <clears throat> push to make 440 the tuning standard. And it was it was originally done because it was more dissonant, and it's um, it was a part of a brainwashing tactic. Yes. But it's something we've just held on to. Right. And, w- and when you say 440, is that referring to, to hertz? Yes, yeah, 440 that's... cycles per second hertz. So the note, the note A is tuned to that. Correct. And if you look at that 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 grid that I just gave you, that's what that is. It's it's in hertz cycles per second. Right. And these numbers in there are, are relate to all that. Um, but yes, yeah, so so anyhow, the uh, there's a, the complete measuring system begins with 432 and i'll explain to you a very simple equation if we take 432 and uh divide it by 21 we get the the number of the root cubit where it all starts in inches 20.571428 and so right in that scale they're showing you where these cubits start and then they kind of walk you through um, how a root cubit goes to a royal cubit, goes to a canonical cubit, goes to a geographic cubit, and all these, anyhow, all the information of the measuring system is housed there. So if we were to lose the knowledge at some point, we could always go back here and regain that understanding. And it's actually easily done with a compass and a square and arithmetic. This is not 
algebra, calculus, and mind-numbing you know, mathematics. This is actually very, very elegant and simple that I could teach to, uh, you know, eighth grade. So uh, it's a place that people could go and they could attain the knowledge. Correct. If they understood. From it by understanding what they needed to do to get the knowledge. Yeah. And I mean, I just did it uh, just step by step because they created this. Like, okay, once you figured figured out where that point was and you started realizing it was actually they led you step by step. If you could figure out the one point, there was another point left there for you to know where to go. Next. Look here next, you know. You find that, look there next. And and you know, you had to use your imagination and, you know, but it all led me step by step to be able to uh, create every structure. I mean, no one else, there's a million and one pyramid theories out there, and a lot of data is good, you know, but they're looking at individual structures. Right there is where they go wrong. This is a complex, a complete complex with this, all, there's 11 pyramids I place. There is the the Sphinx and all its surrounding structures, uh, the Wall of the Crow, uh, Kent Cowis is another temple within there. I can show you why they're there, the, the dimensions that are there, and what they mean very specifically. When we, when we look at the Sphinx, the Wall of the Crow, and Kent Cowis, the other temple, they relate more to uh, the celestial information encoded here. So after we've got the Earth Measure, and that's the name of the, the first book, uh, the Giza Template, um, uh, Temple Growl, Earth Measure, it, it, it is, um, one of the things I want to just quick note in here, the, the name of the, the book and the research is the Giza template. Now, the word template uh, uh, didn't come around until the 1500s. The, the word that was used before template was temple. So temple and template are interchangeable. So when we talk about a temple, we're talking about template, like the knight's, the knight's template. Okay. Uh. Uh, okay. Um, the, the Temple of Solomon, the Template of Solomon. Um, temples are templates. And, and I can, th- this does not end at Giza. This is the tip of the iceberg that... But Giza with, would have been first. Right. Giza was the main, yeah. uh, main uh, uh, core deposit repository. And one of the reasons is, is because they want to view this sky. And they need to kind of be at a... At a point where they were able to do this alignment and line it up to the stars they wanted to align. So Giza, if, if we were to map the trajectory of our solar system and, or, and sun, the only way an engineer or whoever would be doing that, you would have to just pick one point on the earth and, and then start measuring from there. And that would be how the whole system was developed. So that's, you know, a Giza. But there are other, many, many other uh, temples around the world that are encoding this same basic knowledge that, that, that like Laird Scranton's work, shows that there are teachers that were go teaching. Back, yes, we can yeah. go back there, absolutely. And I can't wait to move on to different places and look. Uh, and well, we mentioned that Giza would, would have been first, but... It- um, Maybe not first, but then... Gobekli Tepe possibly right. would have been first. Right. So do you believe... Are you... Do you think that the the Giza pyramids were built 
the time that the Egyptologists say they were, or do you think they may have been built earlier? Well, um, I think I think I can reconcile the differences between the old and the new. I mean, sure. I don't disagree with a lot of what the Egyptologists say about when when these things were constructed, um, but the, but they uh, refuse to look at the weather erosion. Uh, some of them, I think they're coming around now because the data is hard data. This is geolog- geology. We we know that geology. Robert Schock uh, uh, and others have proved that, that that erosion on a sphinx is caused by water. And there's no doubt with climatology, we know when it was wet enough to do that. Yeah. And it's way before the Egyptologists want to admit. But that takes it out of Egypt and that's, that ruffles their feathers and... Uh, uh, they just refuse to look at it. But I've been there, and I've been there with John West, and I've looked at it. I filmed it. I've been shown other places on a plateau and another, uh, even at Saqqara and different places where there is this old eroded stonework that cannot be um, explained um, by the Egyptologists if they're yeah. talking about their timeline. So, right. but with, with that being said, what if... These were built earlier, uh, and if they were just were putting in foundations, let's say, for a complex, um, it's clear, okay, the largest limestone block on the Giza Plateau is a 200-ton limestone block that, that is in the temple in the front of the, uh, the third pyramid of Menkara, the s- smallest of the three main pyramids. In front of that is a 200-ton limestone block within the temple there. Also, there's blocks in front of the temple of the center pyramid of Khafra. And as well, the bases in the bases of these pyramids are all very large limestone megalithic blocks. And as opposed to the later, or well, let's not say later, but let's just say the different construction starts after this basic foundation of big stones. Uh, which look to be older because of the erosional features on them yeah. that mimic what is seen at the Sphinx. Now, Robert Schock uh, has been on the record to say that um, he would would agree that these um, large stones show the same weathering effect as the Sphinx, and they, they due to the limestone, look like they were cut out from around the Sphinx. And you can see these big blocks in the temples in front of the Sphinx. So they all kind of match, and they're at the lower point. So all I'm suggesting, and I don't need anybody to come screaming at me about dating this thing, but I think we could both look at this logically and say maybe that they put this foundation in first, and um, maybe through uh, different cycles of uh, cataclysms or, or whatever, um, they waited until a later date to, to complete these things mm. so that they would last the intended time that they needed to last to carry this information down through, you know, six, seven hundred thousand generations or whatever. It, it's, into very, the future. it's very feasible, too, because you have uh, all these ancient cities that are just stacked up on top of each other. Yes, through layers and there's layers precedence. Exactly. The precedence is there. It's undeniable. Um, there's people that refuse to want to believe it, but um, uh, the, 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 we're getting to a critical mass here where these people just got no leg to stand on when they dispute these things. And 
I think we can sit down here. The two teams, if they if they come in open minded to this, we could we could solve this thing, and both be saying, "Well, yeah, I see your point, and I see your point." I don't think there needs to be a lot of headbutting here, unless yeah. these people yeah. are just closed minded and don't want to look at it for what it is. Yeah, you're right, and and you were talking about the astronomical alignments as well. Mm-hmm. Um, what are we dealing with here? Is like because you, you hear about the procession of the equinoxes. So that's something that uh, correct. I believe Randall had discussed. Uh, Laird has discussed. Right. Um, you know what's the connection there to the two procession? Well, there's a huge connection, and and that is that they mapped this processional cycle very precisely, and they use that um, essentially. Giza consists the, the the design of Giza consists of two separate celestial. Um, counterparts. We have the three pyramids uh, uh, re, uh, that that mimic the belt stars of Orion, which Robert Bouval initially uh, brought to everyone's attention. And we have the Sphinx, the lion, that is counterpart is Leo, uh, the constellation of Leo, with Regulus being the key s- star in that. And if we look at where those those uh, uh, views. Let's say they're sh- they want us to look at those views. They want us to look at uh, Regulus and Leo. Now, Regulus and Leo, uh, Regulus the star rides the ecliptic. The ecliptic is is the plane of the planets or the path of the sun as we view it, as the sun tr- moves up and down in the sky or across the sky. That would be the ecliptic. Um, so they were pointing using Regulus to say, "Hey, watch the ecliptic." And then look at Orion. So they want you to look at two different views. So essentially what I did was um, when I the, – the Sphinx is, is the point at which is viewing the horizon in the eastern sky, and we're going to watch the sun. So essentially what I did was look, looked at that alignment. What's the biggest alignment that we have um, with the sun and that alignment. So it was actually just uh, a thought I had. I said, well, the biggest alignment I'm aware of is like the galactic alignment, which happens and it's part of this great year cycle. So I said, okay, well, what happens if I look and, and see from the view of the Sphinx what we see on sunrise December 21st, 2012? And lo and behold, you know, there it was right smack in front of the Sphinx is you can see the, the galactic plane in, in, in one direction and the ecliptic crossing with the sun right in that cross on the eastern horizon. So I, I looked at that, and then I said, okay, and that was December 21st of 2012, the winter solstice. So I, I decided to look, okay, well, what happens after sunrise? we got 24-hour day here. Let's look at the whole day and see what, what alignment comes up. So I... I I did this in Stellarium, using Stellarium, and anyone can do this. I have the information of the latitude and longitude you need to plug in, and then you can. everybody can do this themselves, and I encourage them to because anyone can recreate what I've done here. None of this is theory. It's all very much uh, reproducible in the scientific method. So anyhow, we're using Stellarium. We're looking at the sky. I got it at, at, at zero, zero hours. Okay, sunrise is zero, zero, or zero hour, zero minutes, zero seconds. We're going to wind the clock ahead, 
to, to look for Sirius because Sirius on the horizon is a, is a major uh, thing. So when we roll that clock ahead, lo and behold, Sirius is right precisely on the horizon, exactly 90 degrees straight up in the air from uh, vertically 90 degrees up is the nebula of Orion, and that is 21 degrees above the horizon. And when, we, and when we look up uh, from Sirius and we look up, if we were to go 11 degrees to the left of 90, we line up exactly with the Pleiades. So um, that's what we see. And there's just too many coincidences there to that not be a very pointed alignment. And, and by the way, the time that we see this all happening is uh, after sunrise is 12 hours, 21 minutes, and 21 seconds. So now okay. what I'm looking at is we got the year 12, or 12, December 21st, 2012, at 12 hours, 21 minutes, and 12 seconds is... Serious. You can do this on your own. Look, look at those coordinates and do it on your own in Stellarium. How much of a chance would that be that we're looking at a binary date set there? So that sets the Gregorian calendar right there, and it's a binary date. They, they set it there. When it, These creators who, who, who come up with the numbers for this, uh, it was purposely done to set that clock at, at all, all those numbers. So then when we, when we go back now and we look at the year zero in the Gregorian calendar, all of a sudden we look up, lo and behold, 11 hours after sunrise, there's Sirius. Now the Pleiades is at 90 degrees straight up, and uh, the nebula of Orion has moved over at, at 9 degrees. So in that 2,000 years, um, we see that the Pleiades moved 11 degrees and M42 moved 9 degrees. So they were tracking these uh, star systems to point out the procession. Now, procession is, according to the academic world, is, is a wobble of the Earth's axis that takes approximately 25,920 years to, to do a full, full circle, and they account that to a wobble. The problem with that is, is no one has ever been able to measure that wobble against the, the sun or the planets in our own solar system. When we go, we can see it at a distant star. We can see, yeah, we're, we're, it looks like we're wobbling. But when they go to measure against our locality, all of a sudden, the, there's no wobble. So, I mean, that right there in your face shows you that whatever is making us wobble is also doing the same with the whole solar system. And so what I have discovered here is that essentially what they showed us about our movement and procession, that procession is related to our sun actually moving in a spiral. And as our sun is moving in a spiral, it's kind of rolling around like a wheel or a disc on a spiral. So if you were just imagine a little uh, a circle rolling along in a spiral motion, that 
would actually look like a wobble. We would see it. It would look like a wobble okay. because we're going around on his wheel and we're right, going right, on a spiral, right? right? It lo- it, in all intents and purposes, it looks like a, we're wobbling. And the, the, the reason um, that, that was the uh, theory put forth a, a wobble, but they didn't at the time have the instruments to measure close proximity. They, they could do it further against further stars out. We could, they could see that. But they didn't have the instrumentation accurate enough to measure in close. So they all said, oh, yeah, it's a wobble. But now we have the instrumentation to check that. And they can't produce it. I've, I've challenged anyone to show me the, the measurements of the wobble in the solar system. And nobody can do that. And, I, I, again, I'll you know, ask anyone if they can show me that data. I will gladly re- revisit my... Um, my, th- yeah. my proposed theory here. And it's not really a proposed theory. It's a blueprint that was left by someone at Giza. And else. I can go point by point by point and show everyone exactly how it was done, all perfectly recreatable recre- and making perfect sense when we look at it, um, this motion. So what's the connection? Because I'm looking, I was looking at your PDF here on your website. And what's the, the you, I see the Mona Lisa here. Mm-hmm. And I see something about the about the Knights Templar. I mean, are, right. are these same measurements? In a, are they being depicted in paintings? Also, uh, uh, was it Poussin's the the shepherds? Right, right. Which is yes. interesting. That comes yeah. up in, uh, yeah. in a lot wait of other till you see, things. Wait till you see that when I really put that out in full. Yeah. Um, well, here's what the story is: is that this knowledge was encoded at Giza, uh, and the the priests and and pharaohs and, and, and whatever, and they knew about this, the, the astronomers, the mathematicians, the priests, they knew the priesthood. One way or another, that information left Giza, and, and I propose it ended up, um, amongst other places, it ended up in Solomon's temple, the template, Solomon's template, temple. Yeah. Okay. Um, the Knights Templar, I think, got wind of what might be there. Nine of these, and, and nine is a huge number in this, in that the template itself starts out with a nine by nine square. Okay, so these are all like symbolic numbers as well. There are these numbers again. Right, right. And, and I know they can get mind-numbing to people and glaze over, and if you don't want to sell books, you put a lot of numbers in them. So, But I'm sorry about that, and it's really not about me selling books. This is about... This is about, for me, it's been a search to find out the truth here. Yeah. And I got to present what it is regardless. So anyhow, I think this knowledge moved into uh, other places, the, the Solomon's Temple being one. I think the Knights Templar got a hold of this knowledge, and that's what allowed them to rise to power and all of a sudden have the understanding of how to erect huge new cathedrals that had new stunning architecture and and it happened in a blink of an eye yeah. after these Templars come yeah, out of really Solomon's it Temple. Just, it just comes, and it just comes ri- about. Within yep. a very short period of time, rivaled the church to the point that they ended up over overpowering the church, really, and the king of France. And the church finally got together in 1307. And by the way, this alignment of this, the, 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 uh, causeway of the sphinx if we were to look at it in the template is at seven thirteenths of the circle 
Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, so yeah, this is all fits together in a beautiful, unbelievably beautiful, harmonious way. But the so the uh, the, the Knights Templar got a little uh, bigger than their britches, I guess, according to the the Pope and the King of France. They were indebted to the Templars. The Templars loaned them money for their wars. They got a little in the debt. They said, okay. We're going to take these guys out Friday the 13th, which happened to be the day that I made this presentation here in the Knights Temple uh-huh, Hall, which uh-huh. was a little unnerving. But, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Anyhow. So, uh, so then this knowledge, um, I, as I showed my presentation, the same uh, template is, is uh, uh, in, the, in the Vatican flag and different. It's very obvious. Really? These, oh, yes. Yes, <laughs> and and the seals of the, the Pope seals, all that show this. And let me tell you a quick little story of how I kind of got onto that. Um, I, I'm a woodcarver, and, and several years back, we had a commission to do do work that was related to the the Vatican. And my my part of the job was to carve beads, fifty four beads. So I was researching why is there 54 beads, and, and, as, and I was researching, and we were actually uh, uh, looking into this, and I was told that the um, when we got looking at the, the seals and the flags and all that with, with all this, they were saying that each um, pope is allowed their own um, uh, crest, but and they could design it themselves and do what they want but there were certain parts of the geometry that they could not um negate they had to use certain geometry that was dictated to them but then they they could embellish around it or or add a little bit but certain geometry was had to be maintained so then i started looking at the similarities of the geometry between all the popes and the flag and i realized whoa Okay, they're all. This is all the same information. I'm finding the Giza in in the thing, in the template. Um, so what I'm saying, and it's not necessarily an easy thing to say, but I'm going to say it, is that these, the Church, the Knights Templar, uh, other organizations, um, including the foundation of the United States of America, um, in the year 1776, and and. I won't maybe get too much into that, but that year was not just uh, picked willy-nilly or, or happened to be when they got uh, pissed off enough to, to start the revolution. No, there is a very, very precise reason that that year was chosen. It was also in the same year was the, was the Illuminati was begun, 1776, 1776. Um, so there was really two sides yeah, May of this. First, right. 1776. Exactly. Now George Washington uh, says right early in in, in that year 1776, I believe he's quoted on this. I, I have it at home, but he states that you know beware; these other groups are going to be trying to infiltrate this great uh, uh, new project that we're going to be starting. Now I propose that they were starting the United States to be at the helm. When this next cyclical uh, event that is encoded at Giza and in the stars literally um, comes to pass, they wanted this country to be at the helm when the chaos might ensue. This is interesting. This is <laughs> wow. Okay, you just blow, you just blow my mind, man. Okay, and I, can, <laughs> and, and I and I and I tell you, you know. 
Whoa. Keep, keep me in your thoughts. <laughs> keep me in your thoughts here, but uh, you know. yeah. <laughs> but I can prove this beyond any shadow of a doubt, and I will gladly. Anyone w- would like to challenge or look at this. I I, I have the data here to show. Um, the whole layout of the United States, or or I shouldn't say the United States. Well, actually, yeah, the whole thing. But the the ten by ten square in Washington D.C was laid out according to all the template information. All of it. Not just one little thing here or there. No, all of it. And I can prove it. Right to the paintings in the Capitol Dome, to the frieze in the Capitol Dome, to the height of the Capitol, which happens to be 288 feet, which is the first number at the beginning of the measure in in our diagram and our scale. Yeah, we definitely got to get you on for a full hour it's and a precise, half interview. And it don't stop this. there. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're going to have to definitely get you on in the near future. Well, great. We're I'd appreciate I need to share this with people. This is important. This is not about me. Yeah. This is about information that needs to get to other researchers, especially, and other people who want to hear this. There are going to be people who do not want to hear this. Let me ask you this. Here's the million-dollar question. Is that how much we... you're paying me? I was about to ask the same question, too. <laughs> What's the question? I, I was going to say, what, in your opinion, when do you think this next yeah. great catastrophe yeah. is coming? Well, do I, we have? I don't, I don't want to say um, that, that that's the case. What I do say is that they were pointing at the galactic alignment. I mean, and it's unquestionable that that's what they were pointing to. But I have yet to find... Anything that says danger, danger. Although sure. uh, my friend Randall Carlson might be able to shed a little light on that. So now Randall, Randall is a brilliant guy. You guys need to talk to him if you haven't already. Yeah, we, we had, we, we, oh, we had okay. him on Friday. Oh, yeah, we talked to him on Friday. Man, you've yeah. got no idea the depth of <laughs> Information knowledge overload. that that guy knows. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so one of the things he's pointing out here is this cycles of catastrophic evidence. And I was fortunate enough to spend 10 days with Randall and, and Brad Young uh, looking at this evidence in British Columbia last summer. And so I've seen this evidence of, of what he's putting forth. But anyhow, if we take his um, uh, data there, it's not actually his data, but it's been collected, and we can show that these cycles occur um, these cataclysmic events, or, or, and some of them are not as big as others, the main one being the end of the Ice Age. But it's been, it's been punctuated with other small um, issues, like, for instance, um, the beginning of, let's say, the Mayan calendar, or what I found at Giza, the Giza calendar is at 3114 B.C., about 5,200 years ago. Um, there's a, a geologist from Princeton who's been studying um, and looking at these melting um, glaciers in Peru. 13,000 feet in the air, the glaciers are receding, and underneath the, the glaciers are fl- were flash-frozen subtropical plants. Think about this for a minute. Yeah. Think about the implications and the ramifications of what we just said there in right. that in that these plants could not grow at that altitude. Problem number one. Uh, you know, so that means they had to be at a much lower altitude. And and they had to go from a a warm subtropical or tropical uh, environment 
to being flash frozen uh, in a very short amount of time before that vegetation had a chance to decay. Re- really quick. That's that's big time, and we see this in Siberia. Would uh, would yeah. uh, there's a lot of other places on Earth that this can be demonstrated. Yeah, we that mentioned things that the were other flash night. frozen, baby. That that happens quick. It leave something, leave some lettuce out on your kitchen table for a while and see how long it takes to you know wilt. Wilt. Okay, yeah. not long. You know, so this had to happen very fast. Fifty two hundred years ago, we're looking at a point in Peru that all of a sudden had uh, plants growing at subtropical uh, altitude, and now it was up 13,000 feet in the air. What the hell happened there? And what would that do today if just that happened? What kind of tsunami or, you know, or other, uh, you know, side effects would that have? I mean, that is huge. So that was 30... 114 or so BC, right at the point where this the Mayan and Egyptian calendar started again. Now, this is a fifth of that cycle of the processional cycle, 5,127 years. That's they're showing. So they're showing that bam, one fifth of that cycle that we just laid out, bam, there's a something happened there, and then bam, something happened back. You know, the, setting off the end of the Ice Age, which also coincides with more alignments. And we look further back, 24,000, 25,000 years ago. Yes, another incident there. Um, it goes back even to 35,000 years ago. Uh, oh, boom, there's another evidence there. So uh, so Randall and I, or, or uh, I'm comparing my work with Randall's uh, geological evidence as to the timing of this thing, and they match beautiful. So I'm not saying that there's a, a cataclysm yeah. coming, but all I'm saying, because I've never seen that in the work, it never says, hey, watch out, something's bad's going to happen. But if we look at the other evidence, we can just maybe, uh, you know, think about that. And the, the other thing I want to say, too, is that uh, winter doesn't start on December 21st, right? I mean, sometimes it comes early, sometimes it comes That's late, true. sometimes we get That's a true. weak winter. So we don't need to get everybody freaked out here and say, oh, no, you know, I don't know that. I don't know that. Yeah. But I need to— sh- It could not be in our lives. Right, exactly. It it, yeah. But but if we, have, scale, if we have children yeah. and we have grandchildren and are concerned about that, we yeah. need to— Everybody needs to chill out here a little bit and and just look at this and say, hey, we, we need to start paying more attention to our environment and some of the things that these researchers have been bringing to the table here. And I think uh, I've got a piece of the puzzle yeah, here that needs to be looked you at. You really do. And I have a moral obligation. I mean, what if what if uh, uh, what if this uh, were well. Let me just let me just leave it at. I, I feel I have a moral obligation to bring this forward. I didn't get into this to write a book. I didn't. This was a truth quest for me. Yeah. And I well, maybe we'll get onto that in another show and, yeah. and really I, get I into depth about I, that. I absolutely think I need to have you on. Great. Sometime at least in this coming summer. Be my pleasure. Um, do want to say though, uh, I, I hope that Trump doesn't destroy America before. The uh, uh, before I, well, the processional equinox disaster it's, happens, it's unbelievable. <laughs> it's a, it's a mess. 
Can we and, just go ahead and just make his name a curse word? It's like, it's well, like banned. Well, well, I don't know. So, so who's worse? You know, I mean, who's worse? Yeah, we got, true. We got, we got, we got bad choices no matter where we are. Yes, I agree. Okay. I was just saying. That I think we could I'm probably pick someone here from the Paradigm Symposium that would make a better president totally. than we have now. But hey, vote for Scotty Roberts. Choose, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know Randall Carlson for president. Yeah, that's, that's it. That's it. Uh, Randall Carlson. He might actually be president. He might not want to run. Though. I don't know. We'll have to ask him. I'll, I'll talk to him. Maybe we can get. Uh, and thank you out. so much. Oh, Tell thank you guys. Again. Pleasure meeting you here. Absolutely. Yeah. Tell everybody again where they can uh, contact you. I will. You, I will be. Your, uh, your actually, uh, I'm going to be doing a lot more social media and get my website upgraded. I've been kind of laying very low, and maybe yeah. you might understand why. <laughs> so, what, what, but your, now, what was your website again? Uh, um, okay. I have a book, The Giza Template. Uh, it's available on Amazon. Um, anybody can go there and, and get that book. It might be available other places. It's self-published right now, but you can get it at Amazon. And, and I'd appreciate people pick it up and give it a look. And, and there is some mathematics in, in it, but it's necessary to prove what I'm trying to say here. It's, it's, it's uh, the foundation of which all this is built from. Um, but I do have it written in a way that should be easy for the layman. And, and you, you can even, I wrote it so that you could skip some of the hardcore uh, uh, precise scientific data and move on and just catch the basic story. A lot of graphics in it. It's only 84 pages long, so you're not going to get, you know, your eyes glazed over for very long. And it's, but it's very comprehensive yeah, in good. its information. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Thank you. And we'll, guys, we will be back. Uh, we'll have the next person. All right, guys, we are here. Um, it is after hours at the Paradigm Symposium. We are still going strong. And we have here first uh, two gentlemen that uh, very interested in. Um, one I've had on the show before, the other I've not had on yet till now. And one of the things that I'm really interested in, I'm not and have never really been an ancient aliens kind of guy. I am more the kind of guy that believes that there was an ancient civil advanced civilization that was on this planet many years ago. And that explains a lot of the uh, world myths, such as the flood explains a lot of what's in the Bible and matches. And back last year, I want to say maybe like June, July, we had Mr. Laird Scranton on. Hello, Laird. How are you? Good. I'm doing good. I'm glad you happened to be back on. This is a perfect opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And over here is Mr. Randall Carlson, who uh, only just met today, but uh, he has uh, had a fascinating discussion about the Ice Ages and about procession and comets. He's absolutely the man when it comes to geology. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, <laughs> what yeah. I want to, how many global warming questions do you get a day? Yeah, that's a good, <laughs> there's a good place to start because a lot of the stuff that you talked about today actually had to do a lot with global warming mm. and some of the ideas there. So what are, what is, do you disagree with kind of like the, the, the current climate change model as it is now? I agree with some aspects of it and disagree with other aspects. I, certainly carbon dioxide has increased the opacity of the atmosphere to infrared radiation. 
Yeah. Uh, I'm not convinced that that's going to have a catastrophic effect, only because the context of what I've been looking at for the last 30 years um, has been a lot of other factors. Um, and I'm convinced that carbon dioxide is a, is a minor player within that. But, you know, I, I keep an open mind. That's my and, – and I'm very much about, um, you know, um, keeping in harmony with our life on this planet – but we also have to place it in the context of understanding that this planet has undergone enormous catastrophes without our help at all. And, and yeah. what I was saying today in the, in the discussion was that we have to begin to expand our framework of thinking to realize that our planet is part of a much larger cosmic ecosystem. And then when we start looking at the forces of the cosmos that can impinge upon the Earth, we're dealing with factors that are orders of magnitude as, as intense as our um, effects on the planet have been, they still will pale in comparison to some of the cosmic events that can happen. Because like I point out, you know, even a small asteroid impact would be the equivalent of, you know, a small asteroid impact is going to release 100 million megatons of energy into the global environment. What and constitutes you, a small asteroid? What a small, a, 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 you know, there? half a mile to a mile in diameter, yeah. moving at about, you know, 10 to 20 times the speed of a rifle Something bullet. Something that's relatively small cosmically. The, cosmically, yeah. yes. Yeah, that's, Randall showed some <laughs> uh, slides today of... Um, patterns of data that that if you watch what's going on, that we should be headed into a, a strong cool, cooling trend mm-hmm. in terms of the overall trends. Right. So you can't be too scared about a global warming uh, problem if you're convinced that the climate is descending anyway in temperature. Mm-hmm. Well, what are they talking about in the 1970s? Wasn't there a huge um, emphasis on global cooling and this this idea that we could go into another ice age, and then yes, that changed was, sometime yes. in the nineties. Well, yeah, the, there were opinions put forward at that same time, at yeah. that time in the nineteen seventies, that were absolutely convincing that we were on the the cusp of a cooling trend, and so we didn't have to worry about this stuff. But all of the predictions that they laid out at that point in time about what we would see if there were a warming trend are the things we're seeing right now. So it's sort of Hard to say, fool me twice, you know? Right, right. <laughs> as far, though, as that, that cooling, you, you, what, what happened was two things simultaneously. You know, as we came out of this planet, came out of the, the Little Ice Age, if, you've, if you're familiar with that term, which lasted from roughly 1400 to about 1850. Right. Which was about a degree to two degrees cooling of the average temperature of the Earth. And, and, and the largest expansion of glaciers worldwide since the end of the Great Ice Age, ten to 12,000 years ago. So the Little Ice Age began to, to um, ameliorate around the middle of the 19th century, right? So this is really when, the, when global warming began, about, say, around between 1830 to 1850, 60, right in there is when, mm-hmm. and, the, and the glaciers really began to undergo recession at that point. And I've collected dozens of, of old... Um, you know, lithographs and, and uh, artist works and, and old photographs from the 19th century where you can clearly see the glaciers are enormously augmented compared to what they are now. And seeing that there was significant recession even throughout the late 19th and early 20th century. But as far as what we see happening is that there was a, a warming period that lasted up until the 60s and 70s. And, and really, if you look at uh, global records are a little bit Sketchy, but there there are pretty accurate records from from North America, and if you look at say just the U.S. of the fifty states, twenty five of the fifty states have all time high temperature records that were set in the nineteen thirties. 
during that Dust Bowl period that haven't been yeah. broken, haven't been broken yeah. since since the 1930s, 25 of the 50 states, right? Okay, well, so we went, was in a very hot period. Well, coming out of World War II, the climate began cooling, right? And it did, it cooled between the end of World War II and really right up till about 1980, it was cooling. Now, at the same time that the climate is cooling, the, the, the scientists, the glaciologists, the geologists, the people that are looking at these things begin to realize that um, the ice ages were a lot more uh, more recent than they had, had previously concluded. And, you know, radiocarbon dating became a viable way of dating uh, ancient materials in the 1950s. And by the early 1970s, enough of a database had accumulated that they could look at that and realize you know what, the Ice Age wasn't some long, unbroken continuum that lasted 100,000 years or longer. And in fact, there appear to have been four glacial, interglacial cycles that have accrued within the last 100,000 years, right? And that so the Ice Ages seem to have come on a lot quicker than anybody had previously imagined, ended a lot quicker, and the intervals of interglacial warmth had been a lot shorter, I mean, on the order of five to 10,000 years instead of 50,000 years. So at the same time that they're realizing that, oh, you know what? It appears that we're kind of overdue, which, which is in effect still true. Because if we look at the Holocene, which is the present epoch of interglacial warmth, we're pushing 11,000 years now. And I showed a graph in the slideshow this morning that essentially shows interperiods of interglacial warmth uh, based upon studies of, of ice cores, which are the most accurate proxy, uh, that the longest period of interglacial warmth in the last 250,000 or quarter million years is the one we're in now. Yeah. See, so, so this realization began to dawn <clears throat> on the scientists in the 70s, right? At the same time that the planet had been undergoing a cooling. But then it reversed and began to undergo warming in the 80s again. Um, at, at the same, but, but the evidence that the interglacial periods have been relatively short, that hasn't, hasn't changed. In fact, it's only additional evidence has accumulated that, that um, you know, that the, really with the, the ice core results come there from the early 90s. So, and they've been refined ever since. You know, they extracted those ice cores from not only Greenland, but from Antarctica, from, from um, montane or mountain glaciers. And they've been analyzing them ever since, still extracting the knowledge that's contained in there. And it just confirms over and over again that the climate has changed dramatically, drastically, catastrophically over and over and over again. And the question now becomes, what's driving that climate change? Now, in the graph that you may, that you may remember, uh, I showed today, you know, you saw those last 10,000 years, you yeah. know, you're looking at those decadal snapshots and you're looking at one, two, three degrees, you know, then Serious suddenly we get back to the, valleys, yeah. yeah. All of a sudden, we get back to you know eleven, twelve, thirteen thousand years ago, and the spikes are enormous. We're talking about ten, right. twelve, fifteen degrees Fahrenheit changes in some cases in three or four or five years. And don't they say when they, uh, the the climate change when when they talk about climate change, let's say that we're experiencing one a one degree shift, a one degree change, and you're talking about eleven we, degree we, yeah, change since since the mid nineteenth century. It depends. It, it varies region to region yeah. and 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 so forth. But so from compared a degree to, that, to a degree and a yeah. half of of warming since the mid nineteenth century, yes, that's about right. And so so the interesting thing is that when you picture that graph, something is driving those massive changes. Now, if the conclusion is that carbon dioxide is the dominant driver of climate. Then what the implication of that is, is that there is some 
unidentified massive reservoir of carbon dioxide that's affecting the climate. If there is that massive reservoir at this point, heretofore unidentified, then we have to consider, well, then some of the carbon dioxide changes in the atmosphere may be totally natural because the ability of nature to to sequester carbon dioxide is extremely efficient, extremely efficient, and it does it. And we've seen uh, literally a, uh, a massive expansion of biospheric activity in the last 20 years, which I think a lot of the, the, the biologists that are looking at that are beginning to reluctantly acknowledge it could be carbon dioxide fertilization effect mm-hmm. driving that. Yeah, because the actual uh, satellite census of hectares of forests are way beyond what anybody was projecting 30 and 40 and 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. But... but uh, I guess my point is that either when you look at those massive spikes, it's if it's not carbon dioxide driving it, if it is carbon dioxide, we have to so assume that there's some massive unidentified reservoir that can outgas into the global atmosphere and then quickly sequester it again. If it's not carbon dioxide, then what is it? It's something else, something right? Else. That we at this point don't know what the culprit is driving <clears throat> it. And that's where I'm saying we're, you know, my thing is, is I don't want to see the science become subject to politics. Yeah. I want free and unfettered right. access to the whole Amen. range of Amen. all yeah. research. <laughs> Let the chips fall where they may. But I think it's clear that we have that the record now confirms that there have been extraordinary, naturally induced changes in global climate that we still really haven't figured out yet. So, where I get frustrated when I hear, eh, well, the debate's over and there's a consensus, mm-hmm. because you know, my first, my first reaction would be to say, okay, well then what was driving? What drove the planet into and out of an ice age? And how can we explain the, the, the thermal energy induced into the system that, that caused this extreme melting? Like I was trying to illustrate today, um, in my, in my presentation this morning, because, and I, and we barely got into it because the, the melting of that ice was so unbelievably fast that it would have required enormous. I used the some. I used the figure three hundred and sixty kilocalories per square centimeter per year, which is about four times or five times what's available in Canada today. Right. Or alternately, you could change the tilt of the planet of the Earth and just simply move the pole to a temperate zone, and wouldn't it melt? It would melt. Would it melt that fast though? That's my. And would the yeah, would the shift amount. be that? Would it be possible to affect the shift that fast? Yeah, maybe, maybe or maybe not. Yeah, or maybe a combination of things like that. Also, when, when it comes to global warming, we have another set of questions, which is that right now we're seeing effects that are, are consistent with a warming climate, with a number of combined effects. We're seeing um, the glaciers worldwide have melted we've seen increases in temperature and in, in intensity of, and frequency of storms um, we see increases in temperature in um, ocean we see rises in ocean level and so forth so whether or not that's a long trend short term we've got some interesting problems the question is do we do what we do we can do not to contribute to it so it's a situation that's comparable to we're in the middle of July the temperature this week is in the 90s. We know that three weeks from now, the temperature is going to be quite a bit cooler. Do we opt not to turn on the oven and to open a window today because it's too hot right now? 
Mm-hmm. And I say, as a society, we should be doing everything we can not to contribute to the heating trend, even if it's going to reverse itself, and even if we're not yeah. the primary contributors. Why make it worse? Right. Is what you're saying. Right. And so, why spend uh, decades and decades debating whether we're the primary contributors? Let's just stop contributing what we're contributing. <laughs> yeah. It, well, here's a question I want to ask both <clears throat> you, put out to both you gentlemen. Um, you know, you talked about the time of the last 100,000 years, uh, the Pleistocene era, and the interglacials. And you know, when you say fast, it's it's kind of it's an interesting kind of word to say fast because you're you're describing time periods that are like 5,000 to 10,000 years. And when you think about our own civilization, how it's really essentially only about five to six thousand years old, is it possible in any of those time periods that there would have been in one of those interglacials, a, an advanced civilization comparable to ours that could have existed and developed within that time okay, frame. Okay, um, the, the original question you asked, you know, you're, you're counterposing advanced civilizations to alien intervention. Well, but but in, for my way of thinking, yeah. that, that's a little bit like asking the question, do you believe in cake or do you believe in pie? <laughs> my attitude is there might well have been advanced civilizations. I see lots of indications there probably were. Yeah. But that doesn't preclude the possibility that we might have had some help somewhere along the line. Okay. Yeah. I see what you're saying there. Well, I like to point out that, you know, if we look at since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, when the main mode of transportation on Earth was horseback or foot or, you know, wind power at sea. I mean, that was pretty much it. And to where we've gotten to in, in three centuries, right? Three centuries within a couple of hundred thousand years of human presence on this earth could be completely lost without leaving Mm -hmm. any indication that, you know, if an event happened today or a series of events, really a series of events is more what we're talking about, comparable to what, you know, I was showing this morning and and, and documenting from um, the Pleistocene Holocene transition to use the geological term, which was 11 to 13,000 years ago. Human species would not become extinct, but human civilization would become extinct. No question. Our, our yeah. civilization would collapse beyond any hope of any kind of recovery, near-term recovery. Um, and the human species would be wholly preoccupied with the problem of survival. Um, unless unless certain factions of, of human beings understood of the impending catastrophe and were able to take steps to ensure the survival of maximum cultural and scientific uh, diversity in some some way or another. I think that's a model that we could use to try to understand our own history because the evidence now does suggest that there was enormous social disruption that was associated with this transitionary period. I mean, we see um, the in North America there was the Clovis culture that, that prevailed up till the very... Um, end of the what is known as the the the, the balling alarod which was a warming period see the the, the the full depth of the ice age lasted from about 16 to 22,000 years ago the the final phase of it mm-hmm. around 15,000 years ago it began to undergo a, a natural warming and amelioration and the ice sheet actually began to shrink back from its maximum at its maximum uh, in the eastern united states the ohio river marked its southern terminus right, which is the borderline of Kentucky and Ohio. So all of Ohio was 
But by 2,000 years later, at least half of Ohio was uncovered. And there may have been, this is maybe when the so-called uh, ice-free corridor opened up uh, in, the, in the western prairies of Canada and allowed for um, human migration um, from the Bering, what was called Beringia back yeah, the then. the land bridge, yeah. The land bridge, right, which I, I think I showed a, a slide earlier yeah. today that kind of illustrated that, down to the lower uh, North American continent. But right around 13,000 years ago, that process got dramatically interrupted. And what we see is the sudden disappearance of the Clovis culture in North America. And there are about 50 documented archaeological sites that have been attributed to the, to the Clovis culture. Um, their toolkits are very distinct um, from the culture that followed 1,000 years later, which is called the Folsom. And to any archaeologist who, who's looking at a Clovis toolkit compared to a Folsom toolkit, they can instantly identify, well, this is the later Folsom culture. But what we see is, is a, a, a very um, distinct Clovis presence right up until the date around 12,900 years ago, right? Now, <clears throat> there is in about half of the Clovis sites around North America, a layer that has been referred to by archaeologists as the black mat layer. It's been identified for decades, but nobody really took a a, a, a really close look at what was in this black mat layer, just like, but there are parallels here between the studies of the black mat layer and the studies of the Cretaceous tertiary boundary that took place in the 1980s. And you know what the Cretaceous tertiary boundary is? That's the, where the, the asteroid that destroyed the dinosaurs, yes, the 66, which would have been six miles long, I believe, yeah, right? 66 million yep. years ago, at least one, probably more than one, Asteroids struck the Earth and and left its calling card in the form of this layer that's found all over this boundary layer that separates the Cretaceous, the 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 last period of the Mesozoic, the great middle era of of planetary life, from the Cenozoic, the recent era and the rise of mammals. Right, and what what was distinctive about that was the presence of iridium, which is a definitely a cosmic signature. It doesn't exist right. in abundance in the Earth's crust. Right. Well, finally, around, in the, around 2005, 2006, 2007, a group of scientists started looking at this boundary layer between the Pleistocene and the Holocene that dated from 12 to 13,000 years ago. And first thing they identified was that this black mat layer, which was now known to have separated the extinct megafaunal species from the extant species. So in other words, very rarely were extinct fossils being found above this layer, but considerable amount of frequency found below it. I showed a slide today that I called the mortality graph that showed this huge spike. Yeah, that was very fascinating. Yeah, yeah. huge spike of, of, of fossilized animals that occur right in that interval, right? Yeah. Um, the other thing was the black mantle layer was black because it was carbonaceous rich, a lot of carbon. Carbon was going to be a signature of fire, Right. Things burn, they leave soot, the soot deposits, and that's the carbonaceous layer. But where it got really interesting was when they looked at the base of that layer, and they began to find proxy after proxy of something cosmic. You found, they found magnetic spherules, they found, or, 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 uh, they found spherules, magnetic grains, uh, nanodiamonds in abundance that are only produced under extreme pressure. Right. The only places that they have been found... Uh, in nature is is associated with known impact craters. 
They've been reproduced in the laboratory, and they've been found in association with nuclear explosions, right. which can duplicate those kind of pressures. But here they were in the billions at the base of this black matte layer. Um, so what that would suggest is pretty clear, that there was some kind of a cosmic event. At this point, it's very controversial, and there was a team that, that sort of dedicated themselves to trying to debunk this whole idea. And I've gone through, you know, pretty much gone through exhaustively through the literature pro and con to see what are the objections to it. And what I'm finding is that the, um, which has been good, this is how science works, right? Mm -hmm. You have this back and forth. And, and this team basically set out to try to like totally discredit this idea that there could have been something like that, some kind of an impact event 13,000 years ago on the scale required. Well, every objection that they came up with has been has been answered, um, and and but it has caused the 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 pro impact group to go back out and really do their homework, dot their eyes, cross their t's, and as they're doing that, the idea becomes more and more robust. Where do they think this impact was? Where do they think it occurred? Well, it's speculative because what 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 I'm trying to show is that, and basically this is where I'm going with my work is that I think you can pinpoint where those impacts were. And, and, and they're, they're concluding that the impacts, and see, one of the main objections was, well, and it was the same objection to the Cretaceous tertiary impact. Where is the, the smoking gun, the yeah, crater? The crater, right. yeah. Right? So this has been one of the big objections where, well, if, if, if something on the scale required that, that you're invoking hit the earth, there's going to be a crater somewhere. Unless, of course, it hit a two-mile-thick ice sheet. You see, if it hits a two-mile-thick ice sheet, most of that energy, or a lot of it's going to be absorbed in the ice, and, and, and it's going to be that, that potential energy is going to be transferred to the kinetic, transformed into the kinetic energy of heat. Mm -hmm. It will melt faster, yes. And this is ultimately what I'm thinking is the, the, going to be the, 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 the most credible cause for the, for the melting, this extreme melting that I've been looking at. And so what I have been doing is assembling maps of the whole geomorphic configuration of North America and the, the flow paths of, these, of the meltwater. And one of the things that's become very clear in assembling these maps is that the meltwater, unlike what one would assume from conventional models of deglaciation, which would be that the margin of the glaciers are receding back, and therefore, the meltwater would be emanating from the margins. It's not emanating from the margins. It's emanating from well back within hundreds of miles, in some cases a thousand miles, back within the glacier mass itself rather than the margin. And, and, um, and then flowing outwards in the form of massive subglacial floods. One of the things that one of the landforms that would uh, be consistent with that is the, is the drumlin fields. If you know what a drumlin is, a drumlin, you ever heard of the term drumlin? No, no. Oh, gosh, this is unbelievably interesting. There are these massive drumlin fields. Drumlins are strangely shaped hills. They look like inverted boat hulls, and they've been referred to as, as streamlined hills. Streamlined, right? <clears throat> the, the, the origin of drumlins has been controversial for 150 years. And as many researchers have looked at drumlins, there's that many um, theories as to what could or create these swarms of these elongated hills that look like inverted boat hulls, right? 
Well, in the 1980s, a Canadian geologist by the name of John Shaw came along and said, well, they're produced by massive water flow under pressure flowing under the glaciers. But as he began to map the extent of these drumlin fields, they were so vast that the floods required were beyond anything that anybody was willing to accept. So all of his critics basically said, no, they couldn't have been formed by subglacial floods because these floods would have had to have been too massive, right? What was the source of this water? You can't provide it. And he said, well, I don't know, maybe some kind of enormous subglacial reservoirs. Critics came back and said, well, you you know, ice is not going to retain, like one of the flood events that he referred to as the Livingstone Lake event, which was actually flowed right down over Minnesota, um, he said required 84,000 cubic kilometers of water, right? And they said, well, no, yeah, yeah, that's ridiculous. You couldn't have a reservoir of water retained within the ice mass because ice is too permeable and, you know, it's fractured. You, you're not going to have that kind of... And so this has been the primary criticism that Shaw's idea that these drumlin fields or swarms have been produced by subglacial floods. However, within the context of this new theory, you don't need a reservoir. What you do need, and this is what I was talking about in my presentation this morning, was this energy paradox. Right. Right? You need some way of inputting an enormous amount of energy into the system. And once you begin to realize the extent... This trip that I did last August, I spent two weeks up in British Columbia mapping drumlin fields because what I was looking for was the source of the water for those floods that I began to show when I showed the, the, the giant ripples and the, the huge erratic boulders. Uh, where did that water come from, see? And I don't accept the conventional explanation, so I'm going beyond that. And so essentially what I'm getting at here is I think that we can actually map the epicenters of the impacts by looking at the patterns of regional erosion and deposition and, and, and because water. Because each one of those impacts should have produced an effect similar to that, right? Yes, we get a fist bump for that, yes. <laughs> and, and see, here's the thing. When you have an impact into the ice, you're going, have an, you're going to have multiple things happening simultaneously. You're going to have instantaneous vaporization of an enormous amount of ice, right, injected right into the atmosphere that's going to be in circulating and over the next few weeks is going to rain out, right? You're also going to have an enormous fracturing of the ice right down to the ground, the base, the substrate underneath. That fracturing is going to radiate out from the impact center, and you're going to have enormous amounts of melting. That melting is going to flow back into the what they would refer to as the transient crater, right? And as it does, you know, water is denser than ice. And if you have enough of that water, what would be called the resurge flow, back into the transient crater, it's going to force its way under the ice, decouple the ice from the substrate, and force its way under. And it's that water flowing under pressure under the ice that's forming these drum massive drumlin swarms that are all over Canada. They're up. There's some here in Minnesota. There's an extensive drumlin field just east of Madison, Wisconsin, that we drove across a couple of days ago coming up here. There's a massive drumlin field um, between the Finger Lakes and Lake Ontario, massive drumlin field, very distinct um, from the air. Um, and what you see in all cases is where the drumlin fields are, they were under the ice sheet. And then you can see a very distinct change in flow regime as the water would expel from under the ice sheet and now have a free surface. Because now what it does is it creates a different, very distinct different kinds of flow regime. So this is what I've been I've been working on. I've been mapping these features with the intent of trying to provide 
to show, and I at this point believe that there were seven epicenters that I've now I identified uh, where, and I, what I'm thinking was so this the, thing broke apart. Broke apart. Yeah. You remember Shoemaker Levy Nine right, and, right, and, right. And, and, and what we saw there? I think the universe was Jupiter, kind of showing yeah. us. But shouldn't there also be proportions between those pieces that fell? Is there any way to predict what the trajectory that yeah, they yeah, came the, the into the atmosphere? Right. I mean, yes, I think they came from the northwest. And uh, but if you're right about the the number of pieces, I mean, shouldn't there be spaced in predictable ways? Is there a way to predict um, how how they would have? Hit in relationship to one another. Yes, I, I think we would be looking the same thing as we saw with Shoemaker Levy Nine. We would see a train of things coming in, hitting one after another as the Earth is turning underneath, and basically that's what I've been mapping, and it'll be part of my book. Now it's interesting from a cosmology standpoint, the idea that that might, kind of event might have changed, uh, made a change in the tilt of the axis of the Earth, is upheld by things like. In Mexico, you've got entire complexes of structures that look as if the culture was following the pattern of aligning to cardinal points, mm -hmm. but all, the entire complex is off by like six degrees from where north oh. ought to be. And you go to China, and you've got the reverse offset by a few number of degrees. It makes it look like at that time they were aligning to a different pole than, than we currently have. And you also mm -hmm. have other features like you have... Um, Huge petrified forests at the in Antarctica, the South Pole, that are of the comparable variety to what Lewis and Clark found on the West Coast when they mm. arrived. But you can't grow a tree like that in conditions of light as they exist mm -hmm. at the South Pole. So that implies that the South Pole wasn't always at the South Pole. Right. And same thing, you've got animals in Siberia that look like they ought to have been in a more temperate or subtropical climate as opposed to in a in a cold climate. Well, yeah, and you mentioned that today too that there like the Siberia at the time was about we were talking roughly 13,000 years ago that it was that it was much more of a temperate climate mm -hmm. and every and all the ice and everything the tundra was much further much further up. Well, where further you north. find the greatest concentration of extinct megafaunal remains is Siberia, and particularly along the, the, the Arctic coastline of northern Siberia, where there's basically just not enough vegetation today to support that kind of abundant you've, animal life. You've also got islands up there, entire islands up there that are formed completely yes. of animal bones. Yeah. Tire, that were washed. Yeah. And I have, I have heard, um, I remember reading uh, Fingerprints of the Gods... Back in the 90s, uh, Graham Hancock, I know that you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, he, one of the things that, that struck me was it, this happened so quick that you have mastodons that still have plants in their stomachs that have not even been digested. That's literally how quick right. this event occurred. Right, and that can really only happen if you suddenly have shifted an animal into a freezing zone that wasn't previously in one. Well... The the thing you're referring to was actually a woolly mammoth. I don't know if okay. quick for because the mastodons were primarily, um, you know, we had a lot of mastodons in the non-glaciated region of North America. A lot of them have been found, um, you know, from from Georgia to you know, um, Arkansas and Missouri. A lot of them have been found in Missouri, in Ohio, non-glaciated periods, places in Ohio, the western states. You found a lot of woolly mammoths and other species of mammoths in Siberia. 
And the particular one that's the most famous was the Barasovka mammoth that was found in 1901. With the post-Little Ice Age warming, there was a collapse of a permafrost cliff that exposed the skull of this quick-frozen, six-ton woolly mammoth. And yes, like you said, um, they found um, undigested food in his stomach that had not putrefied. And also meat the dogs could eat without getting sick. Hmm. Yeah, the, 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 the dogs and the wolves were eating wow. the, the flesh off the skull. After 10,000 something years. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and, and so it seems, seems to me that in addition to the kinds of effects you're describing that would be caused by the, the comet impact, that over in certain periods of time we're also having warming effects because of changes in tilt. And that change in tilt is, is accentuating whatever. Well, consider this, Laird, in terms of support for the, this tilt. You know, if you look at the center of the great ice mass, it was Hudson Bay. Right. And if you draw Which a— is where actually where I think the pole previous— <clears throat> This was going was. back, and I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Charles Hapgood. Right. Right? Okay, right. well, that was his, his idea. Right. Um, the thing is that my perspective on the alignment of the pyramid— Okay, the pyramid stays in alignment if you change the tilt of the axis of the Earth. It comes out of alignment if you shift the crust. Mm. And so because the pyramid's still precisely aligned to north, south, east, and west, since the pyramid was built, you can't have shifted crust. What's your, what's your uh, take on when the pyramid was built? That's a good question. But there's, I mean, I don't have any reason to contradict the idea that the pyramids were built when the Egyptologists think they were. Right. But there's also nothing to contradict the possibility of them having built, been built earlier than that. Mm. The problem is we don't have any definitive evidence to say when he can't really carbon date the stone. Right. And <laughs> so there's no easy way right now to know mm. for sure. Right. When, do, when do you think that they were built, Randall? Do you have a... a I, I'm a with Laird. I, you know, I yeah. could go either way on that. Because um, you hear about the 10,500 BC idea. Well, that relates to the Sphinx. Yeah, and I'm right, convinced so. that the Sphinx, but it's like maps out the. I guess it, from what I remember from reading this material, it maps out the position of the star. the The three pyramids map out the position of the stars of Orion, mm-hmm. and the Sphinx would be where Leo rose yes, in yes. the on the is it the solstice? I believe the yes, recession right. of the equinoxes. Leo would have ro- risen in that area. Yeah. So, Twelve thousand five hundred yeah, roughly years ago. around that right time. now. Ed Nightingale today was talking about Barnard's Loop. Now, the way he got to Barnard's Loop, he didn't actually. I got to Barnard's Loop. And the way I got yeah. to it mm-hmm. was there's a Dogen myth about a mythical character who plays the role of light in the Dogen myth. And he measures out the universe in 8 billion steps. Well, in the symbolic language of this mythology, step is a representation of a cubit. It's one of the ways you measure a cubit. Now, I know that the user universe does not measure 8 billion cubits, but... One figure that's um, frequently given for the size of the visible universe is 8 billion light years. So I said to myself, someone's creating an, an equivalence here between cubits and light years. So then I asked, how is it that you know how big a cubit is? Well, we know it from the dimensions of the Great Pyramid. It's uh, uh, They inferred it from the dimensions of the Great Pyramid, which measures 440 cubits per side of the square side and 280 cubits high. So working with combining that with Boval's theory that the pyramids are pointing to Orion, I went to Google and I keyed in 440, 280, and Orion and pressed enter, and it turned up Barnard's Loop, which is a spiral like birthplace of stars that measures 440 light years by 280 light years. This is an absolutely key structure. It's a structure the Dogen referred to as 
the chariot of Orion because when you image this thing with time-lapse photography, it's a very faint structure. It looks like the wheel of a chariot that Orion the Hunter is standing in. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, so your question about when the pyramids were built and about the alignment of the Sphinx and so forth, um, it's a tough question to answer because, again, if you had a clock that had stopped at midnight, okay, you could ask yourself now, when did it stop at midnight? Right. It's as reasonable to think that it stopped at midnight yesterday or is it midnight a week ago or midnight four months ago yeah. or midnight a year ago. Yeah, good analogy. Same yeah. thing. So the Sphinx might have been pointing to, to Leo or, and to those markers um, at the start of the last cycle or at the start of the previous cycle or at the start of the one before that. Did you want to ask something like that? Uh, the, the mainstream belief on when the pyramids were built are 7,000 BC, right? No, they're um, more in the tw- the twenty four hundred. Yeah. BC. Oh, really? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now the Sphinx, because of Robert Schock's work, which I, is not accepted by everybody, but he has said that the weathering on the Sphinx uh, points to about, I think his most conservative estimate was seven thousand years. Right. This came out of a statement, a casual statement that Schwaller de Lubitz, who's the first mm. Egyptian symbolist, made in a book that mm. my friend John West. Noticed and pick up, picked up on and said, well, that's interesting. We might be able to demonstrate the age of the Sphinx based on weathering. And he enlisted Shock to go take a look at it. And the two of them looked at it and studied it and debated it and made a presentation to the American Geological Society and said, look, this is classic lime water or limestone water weathering. And if, if it is water weathering, we have to go back to a period in Egypt where there was enough rainwater to have weathered it. Right. And you have to go back at least to... Four to 6,000 B.C., probably 6,000 B.C. or before, to be able to get enough water to be able to do that. But that doesn't mean that it might not have been built quite a bit you know, longer before that. Exactly. And I'm not exactly sure how you, how you are definitive about determining that. Yeah, yeah. Probably through cosmically stimulated luminescence, <laughs> which is something I'm trying to learn about because that is a way you can uh, actually date how long a rock has been exposed to cosmic ray bombardment. Wow. Maybe that's the way we have to go. So, Laird, if we can get some funding up. <laughs> yes. We'll... And we've got other other issues when it comes to dating. Um, there are things, strange things that happen at 709 B.C. Um, you've got a situation where every total eclipse of the sun that has happened since 709 B.C. has been um, verified with retrospective calculations to the place and the the date. Not a single total eclipse of the sun prior to 709 BC can be verified that way. Really? Now, the only way you get that situation is if something significant has changed in the relationship between the earth, the motions of the earth, the moon, and the sun. So something big happened at 709 BC. You also have a situation where the rate at which plants absorb ions changed. So radiometric dating doesn't work across that 709 BC boundary either without fudge factors. So anybody who's talking to you about alignments of structures before 709 BC um, may not have a case because the truth is if we can't hit those eclipses, we don't know where the stars were in relation to us. We have no way of anchoring it. So I guess my next question is what happened in 709 BC? Well, if you believe Velikovsky, what happened was that Venus was formed as a planet sometime a few thousand years prior to that and made a close approach. Actually, the, uh, 709 BC was actually an event ca- 
caused indirectly by Venus. Um, it displaced Mars, and Mars made a close approach to the Earth, supposedly, and affected the, the tilt of the axis of the Earth. Now, what's interesting is that cultures all around the world that for thousands of years had observed a 360-day year up until that point in time suddenly all changed to a 365-day year in the eras immediately following that. These are cultures that aren't supposed to be in communication with each other. And so it's hard to imagine what kind of an influence induced them to do that except an actual change in the length of the year. So uh, part of what I did for my Velikovsky book was I um, tried to research the basis upon which um, Egyptologists claimed that the Egyptians had a 365-day year in ancient times. And so I used my friend John Anthony West as a resource. He has access to people who are experts on it. And I asked him to pose the question to them, say, tell, tell them, all I need is one unequivocal fact that insists that Egypt had to have a 365-day year in ancient times. And it turns out there isn't one. All of the, all of the evidence is equivocal. Um, it rests on counts of numbers of months and days but, and names of months, but the names of the lunar months were the same as the names of the solar months. So you can't tell whether they're talking about this many lunar months plus five days or this many solar months plus five days, and that makes a difference. So it's theoretically possible that there really was a 360-day year up until that point in time, and then something happened and changed the length yeah, of the year. Something major. Let's talk about Scarabray. Okay, Scarabray. Because we uh, we kind of, uh, the last interview I had you on, I think you were working on the book at that time. I think it's just about to be published. It will be in, in November, but I've been, been talking about it, and I'm going to be uh, filming a documentary segment in Scotland with James Swagger in August at Scarabray in northern Scotland. And uh, there'll be a conference in England and a couple of other things. Um, Scarabray is, I knew nothing about it two years ago until a friend, a distant email acquaintance, uh, sent me a question. He said, did I think there could be Egyptian influences in northern Scotland at Scarabray at 3200 BC? Scarabray is the first organized little farming village, they think, in northern Scotland. Um, but 3200 BC is way too early to have Egyptian influences there. Egypt was still pre-dynastic. Nobody believes that Egypt was organized enough to mount a mission across, all the way across to Scotland right. at that point in time. Yeah. So, But I know that there's an African tribe called the Dogen that I study that at 3200 BC was, I think, was Egyptian based on the evidence. And they've done a really good job of preserving traditions. And I thought I might be able to find commonalities between Scotland and the Dogen. Well, it turns out there are commonalities and some that are really compelling. There's a plan, uh, an architectural plan for the houses that were built at Scarabray originally that is a match for a Dogen architectural plan. And the Dogen plan is based on cosmology. It has cosmological meaning. It represents the image of a sleeping goddess. And um, so because I can align the architectural plans, which implies the cosmologies align, now I can explain a whole series of megalithic structures on Orkney Island in Scotland that are consistent with that same um, cosmologic, cosmological plan. So this is the same. We have a series of structures built on a human scale that a person could walk through that represents stages of how matter forms <laughs> at 3200 BC. So we're looking at something that is similar, a ceremonial center 
in a teaching center that is something similar to like Gobekli Tepe. To Gobekli Tepe, Tepe yeah. only at 3200 BC. Um, the more interesting thing is there are ways to demonstrate that rather than the influences having come from Egypt to Scotland, they actually flowed the other way. A hundred years after this site is in, starts to be in use, and they're teaching agriculture on Orkney Island, apparently, you see the rise of four agricultural kingships in four regions of the world. One is called Taru, it's Egypt. One is called Aru, it's Ireland. The other one's called Iru, it's China. And the last one's called Peru, it's in South America. Hmm. And these same words have multiple meanings. They also refer to the four cardinal points, north, south, east, and west. And they also can refer to four stages of agriculture, uh, an uncultivated field, a planted field, a field with plants growing in it, and a granary. So you have all these references that make it look like 100 years after they started teaching agriculture, suddenly we have um, kingships established in places that take hold. Since we're in them, well... Are, ahead, are you guys ready to write a textbook? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, new new geology textbook and, and new uh, I don't even I don't know epicenter of humanity textbook. Actually, what I'd like to do is, and I'd like to do it soon if I could, is to start organizing uh, days worth of classes on these subjects. You know, find a college that let us use a classroom oh, for a day, and invite people to come, like a like a conference like this, only with the idea of. We're going to teach you yeah. a subject today. We're going to go in depth on a subject like something that Randall knows about, or something that Ed Nightingale knows about, or whatever. And it's and, something you can come back to day after day instead of just being at a conference, or you may be limited to like one hour of time. And start so, out simple. Start out with just a one day situation, but then maybe work it up to a point where, between that and the internet and other media, we can actually be educating people about these subjects. That's really where I see it going to is in the form of a school. Yeah. And, and, you know, I've been a builder for 40 years. And, of course, studying architecture in conjunction with all this, my vision and fantasy is to build that college and build the college incorporating the ancient principles as we understand them, but in a 21st century context so that the, the infrastructure is actually a teaching instrument as well. You know, so that the that the cardinal directions are laid out, so that the the auspicious uh, cosmic alignments are built into it. You know, that it would be built to resonate with its place on the earth. And I think a a a, a location like that with an infrastructure like that would be the ideal kind of context for the presentation of this kind of information. And it would be on a bring your own ten ton blocks. Basis. Yeah, every every <laughs> yeah everybody that came would contribute one ten ton block. <laughs> well, I have to ask you, um, and we'll, we'll call it. But um, since we're in a Masonic lodge, you know, this has got me thinking about uh, you know the the relationship between Gobekli Tepe and some of the other sites like Scarabray that you've talked about. Is there a secret society involved? In this, is secret there a societies tradition? have been spawned from this, yeah. and there it comes out of the esoteric tradition. The way the esoteric tradition worked um, originally, from what I can tell, the Dogen preserved the model. Um, the idea is that if you're a priest and I'm an initiate, if I ask you a question that's appropriate to my initiated status, you're required to give me a truthful answer. 
But if Randall comes along and asks you a question that's inappropriate to his status, you're required to remain silent or to lie if you have to to protect the, the information. This esoteric tradition by nature is secretive because, well, it's, it, it is and it's not. Any Dogen tribes person can potentially learn it. All they have to do is pursue it. And if they keep pursuing it, they will learn it. So it's not really secret. It's just restricted mm-hmm. to a sincere student. Right. Excellent. Are any of you gentlemen Masons? No. Okay. No. I did get invited once, but you did get invited. You didn't get, yeah, well, <laughs> to, to a small, tiny lodge in a little small town in Tennessee. So okay, well, I have to tell you this now: that's against Masonic protocol. There's absolutely soliciting is prohibited. Oh, wait. you know why? Because the first step has to be your own volition. Yeah. Sometimes you might see a bumper sticker that says it's "Ask to be one." Right. If you see that, you know that that's a Masonic mm-hmm. bumper sticker, which is that the first step has to be at the at the initiation of the aspirant to it. But right. he, he did also say you should come, you should come apply something to that nature. Not yeah, may, there's kind of roundabout ways it, yeah. to go about it because hey, let's be honest. The ever since the '50s, the Masonic roles have been declining because yeah. you know. Young people are now more interested in playing computer games and being online and, you know, all kinds of fantastical conspiracy theories rather than going and seeing what it's really all about. Mm. I gotcha. <laughs> yeah. That's why it's awesome to have such an abundance of wealth from guys like you, you guys, uh, on this because, like, it, it's hard to find any kind of information on global change, uh, global climate change, mm-hmm. it, it, a good, reliable source. Mm-hmm. Everything you go to try to look up on the Internet, is it's always hearsay or you don't know if you're reading some article, some some couch surfers is written yeah. or well, right. this is the, versus an actual One of the big problems researcher. with the trends of society today is we've sacrificed any bottom truth to anything. You can't get to an ultimate truth about something through normal channels. You have to have you can get get to it sometimes through comparison, and you can get to it through independent research. But um, I tend to prefer sources that are before 1920. Because there, I know that the researchers are giving me an honest take on the thing they're looking at. But anything after about that period of time, you have weird stuff happening. Around 1970, you have deliberate, what I think are deliberate efforts to subvert information places. Um, one of the key places we should be looking for information about the things I study is uh, was covered over by water because of the Aswan Dam that was built in the 70s. Um, you have even uh, structures on Orkney Island were deliberately rebuilt in the 1980s. They changed the structure of the thing just enough. Uh, Ed Nightingale says that the official surveys of the Giza Plateau that were done that everybody relies on for information about um, dimensions of things and relationship placement of things, they're all wrong. When he compares it to a uh, satellite survey map that's accurate to centimeters, he can see these official surveys misstate certain key measurements by significant amounts. Anybody who relies on it will never come up with something that's meaningful. Could I address, just since you brought it up, just address the the idea of of secrecy? Yeah. Okay. Um, One of the important things to understand about, like, the the modern Masonic fraternity is it's descended. um, its, Its historical pedigree can be traced pretty rigorously back to 
the lodges of medieval guild builders that were engaged in the cathedral building enterprise that lasted from the mid-1100s to the early 1300s. And with the decline of that building enterprise, lodges went from operative to philosophical, which, or use Masonic terminology, speculative, uh, which, which means philosophical. And what you see over the next two or three hundred years is that lodges went from essentially being almost fully uh, operative to being fully philosophical or speculative. So that as we come into the, uh, the reformulation of the Masonic fraternity in uh, 1717, uh, which was the, the, um, the, the, um, the merging of four separate Masonic lodges that, that existed in the British Isles, at that point, we, we see the birth of the modern incarnation, but it traces its pedigree back to the Middle Ages. But if you look at the symbolism and the rituals and the philosophy behind the, 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 the craft lodges, and they affiliated were affiliated with the Templar movement, no doubt about that, because Templar symbolism has, has certainly found its way into the, the modern Masonic uh, yeah, symbolism. Yeah, like This it, building we're in now. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. But if you look at the, that... The symbolism of a cinder block. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, so, but if you go back from there, you'll find that there were many organizations from, you know, the, the, the Comachine builders uh, earlier, the, the Roman Collegium, the Dionysian Artificers, the Etruscan Fraternities, going back really to the days of the building of King Solomon's temple, you know, the whole structure is there, you know, and it's so similar, you know, that the three degrees of initiation, uh, a lot of the symbolism that goes on. But as far as the secrecy goes, it's like Laird was saying, it's, there's nothing really secret that's not open to anybody who's sincere and wants to go in and, and, and um, access that. However, when you go back to some of the periods of religious oppression, what you find out is that if you espoused any belief, if you belonged to any um, organization or group that was even suspected of heretical beliefs, I mean, you might end up burning at the stake or, or yeah. you know, some horrible um, fate, right? And so the secrecy is, is really, there's a part of it that's historical, which is that when you go in and you and you realize that there is this context of secrecy, it refers back to these historical eras where, you know, in order for the fraternity to survive and preserve its body of symbolism, it had to be secret. And there had to be a way of recognizing, a complicated way of recognizing somebody who had been through this process of initiation. And this this is a problem for me because the first principle I have for myself about this material is that it's not proprietary. And so any choice relating to secrecy that results in the material being essentially proprietary, I don't sign on to. Yeah. Um, the symbolism, when you go in earliest China, the, the first god and goddess of China, the, their icons are mm-hmm. a compass and a, a builder square. Yeah. Okay, that's Masonic. When you go back to Gobekli Tepe, there's an enigmatic H symbol on the side on the side of certain pillars that, from my perspective, carries exactly the same meaning as it does in the later Masonic traditions. So these are are it's a it may be a and the Masonic tradition may be a later tradition, but it's built on philosophies and symbolism and cosmology that goes all the way back to the end of the Ice Age. 
Yeah. Wow. And another aspect of that symbolism wow. <laughs> is, is this. <clears throat> when you go into it, you're basically participating in a mystery play in three acts, in, in the Blue Lodge. You know, the, 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 the apprentice, the craftsman, and the master. You go through those three degrees, and, and it's like entering uh, a, a palace it's been likened to. And what you're doing is you're entering into the vestibule or the outer court, and this is the Blue Lodge, and there are three doors, three steps there. And then from that outer court, you have access to these other areas where there's more detailed knowledge available, whether it's the Scottish Rite or the York Rite or the Shrine or the Grotto. There are these affiliate Masonic bodies. But the core of the whole thing is the three degrees of the, of the, of the, the Blue Lodge, as it said. The blue is a symbol of the cosmos, of the, of the sky. And right there, you're told in the ritual that if you really want to understand what all this symbolism is about, you've got to study some stuff. Geometry, uh, astronomy being the two key, um, and rhetoric. But in this sense, uh, it means rhetoric in the sense of language and right. the origins of language like we were talking about earlier. Right. But it's also like this. If, if you go into this mystery play, you're, you're a candidate and you're pretty much you go into this process, and for the first three degrees, you're a participant, but you're more or less passive. Things are being done to you, and you're being shown things in this. And it leads up to the culmination, which is just like if you think of any, any movie in three acts or any play in three acts. But there's kind of a twist. There's, a, there's some plot twists in it, right? Now, imagine that you're going to see some really interesting, engrossing mystery show that has a plot twisted. What was the, the movie with Bruce Willis where he finds out at the end that he's a, a, a ghost? The Sixth Sense. Six six spoiler, right. spoiler alert. Right. Spoiler alert. Sorry. I'm figuring that by now everybody is yeah. right. Okay. Had since 94 or something right. like that. Okay. So, so it's a, like a spoiler alert, right? It, it, it would completely mitigate the dramatic impact of that movie if somebody would told you what the end was, right? Well, it's the same way, you know, with the Masonic. The, this, this, the, the, the culmination of it leaves an emotional impact, but that emotional impact comes with the, with, with the unexpected nature of it. And if you go in there fully knowing what's going to happen, it really mitigates the emotional impact of, of, of the whole experience, which to me is another dimension of, of why you would want to keep it secret. And, of course, these days, none of it, all of it's secret, but none of it's secret. Because you can go in and you can talk to 100 Masons and you, you'll be lucky if you find one of them that has gone beyond the outer layer of, of the symbolism and the meaning inherent in the ritual. You yeah, see. that's true. But it's there. Anybody who wants yeah. to can, can go in. Anybody can walk in a door and, and say, how do I become a Mason? And the process starts. They go, okay, well, you just made the first step. We'll take it from here, right? And there's a lot of people that like it because it's a social thing. or it's a, it's Because a, it's a social thing together. or it's a charitable yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, business twice, connections. Right. Yeah. Business yeah. connections. Yeah. Right. And, and you know what? That's valid. And you know why that's valid? Because they're helping to pre preserve this corpus of amazing symbolism that, that, that the Masonic fraternity is the custodian of. And I have actually put together a whole program looking at some of this symbolism in depth and how it relates to the whole universal mystery tradition and is completely complementary and compatible to the mystery tradition as you find it in in many incarnations around the world and through history well gentlemen i definitely appreciate you guys doing this and sitting in with us um i'd love to get get 
each on for your own show again. We have sure. you back on and again, Larry, to talk about the new book. And Randall, it looks like there's a lot we can explore with you. On this. Yeah, we didn't even get to my <laughs> theories on the origin of the mullet that we can see. <laughs> the, next one. The, the two of you together is like critical mass. We, we could just talk for like five hours. <laughs> Real quickly, uh, tell everybody where people can get your website, where they okay. can contact you, and where your books are sold. Two websites, Sacred Geometry International. Just okay. put that in your Google. It'll it'll be the first thing coming up. Geocosmic Rex, R-E-X, Geocosmic Rex, one word, and that'll bring up the second website. And there, the, the emphasis is a little different on both. There's a lot of overlap, but the emphasis is different. Hopefully my book is going to be done by this fall. That's what I'm working on. I've got close to 100,000 words written. Wow. Yeah, close to 100,000 that I've been working on for about three years now. Yeah. And, wow. I'm getting ready to get it finished, get it wrapped up. But you know the problem. I mean, I'm sure you run into this problem. It just keeps going. Yeah, I, you know, you, you think you never a point where you can draw a line and say right. this is finished enough to publish. Right, it's <laughs> it's tough, and yeah. maybe I can get. And if you do, the next day you come up with something. <clears throat> Gee, I want to open this back up and. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. But but yeah, I've I've got a couple of people on me now that are with big sticks yeah. saying you got to have this finished by you know <laughs> such yeah. as that. But those two websites will get you there, and we've got there's a lot of information there, a lot of already written stuff that I've put up. There's a lot of video clips and and a lot of cool stuff, and then I've got this DVD for sale. It's about four or five hours of concentrated stuff, um, which I've got for sale here, but also okay. um, you can go online and and, and get it. Okay. As well. Excellent. Um, best place you can find my books pretty much any place. If you wanted to go to a website, you go to my publisher's website, innertraditions.com or simonandschuster.com. Or you can find them on Amazon. As I said, you walk into a bookstore and usually there'll be at least one of them on the shelves. Um, there is a lairdscranton.com website that's actually a fan site. Uh, if people want to contact me, and also that tab from that site does. Reach me if the, someone enter, enters contact information. Uh, but normally, if people want to contact me, I'm on Facebook. I ask them not to confuse me with all the other Laird Scrantons out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, excellent, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Thanks. And uh, guys, we, we will be uh, interviewing someone else very soon. Stay tuned to find out who it is. Great. Okay. <laughs> well, thanks, thanks for having me. Thank you, guys. <laughs>
around those is a challenge, but it's fun and a lot of neat people here. And I'm glad people enjoyed the yeah, the lecture was, we gave. You were sorting through those for a long time today. <laughs> well, he's got a lot of artifacts. Yeah. <laughs> There's probably 3,000 there at least. There's a lot of stuff to go through, but it's cool stuff. Yeah. Well, that's your thing. You know, yeah. Looking at all the artifacts and dating them. And I wanted to ask you a question. <clears throat> and, you know, I figured I would throw this out at you. We, of course, we talked to Randall Carlson. We talked to Laird Scranton. We've talked to um, Ed Nightingale in uh, conversations at, here at the table and also just you know, that we haven't recorded. I'm curious to you what your thoughts are, because I know you've studied this stuff. I know that you're a Freemason as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to know your thoughts on this existence of, or potential existence of an ancient civilization and whether modern day Freemasonry in a way is a kind of a repository of that knowledge. That's a million dollar question, I know. Well, it is and it isn't. I think um, in in a nutshell... Um, after having gone through, obviously I be, I'm become a master mason. I've gone through the York Rite degrees. I've gone through the Scottish Rite degrees. Wow. I just completed them yesterday. Congratulations! Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, it was awesome. <laughs> it was it was amazing. That thirty first degree is yeah. Just you literally ridiculous. Went, you literally were over there in another part of of Minneapolis. Yeah, and then literally came here to give your presentation. Yeah, as soon as the uh, degree was over, I was out and I I walked in here <laughs> and I I made it on time. We started a little late, but anyway. Um, as far as ancient civilizations go, do I believe there was an ancient civilization, maybe of of a higher culture? I I think so. I do yeah. think so. And did something catastrophic happen that caused them to, I wouldn't say disappear, but to retract to a point where they almost had to start over? I think that that might be what happened. Um, I'm seeing a lot of interesting new science that's coming out that seems to support that. I'll tell you what, Graham Hancock's latest book, Magicians of the Gods, is excellent. It's mostly geology. And so I really, you know, appreciated that. And, you know, one of the things I was just talking to one of the people that was uh, attending the conference here, a young lady who asked me a few questions. And one of the things that we both agreed on is that people will find incredibly creative ways to disappoint you but rocks never do rocks don't care they don't have bad days they don't have personalities agendas egos they don't care and so i trust the rocks and from the presentation that i gave yesterday um, i was hoping to give the audience a sense that that's where my foundation is that's where my trust is is in the rock and and the runestone in this case the Kensington runestone um and when I've you know and I've also studied the history of the investigations and the human element has reared its ugly head uh every time yeah and it's it wasn't about the science it wasn't about um the language, the runes, the dialect, you know, the, the real hardcore stuff. It was about people, about personalities, about being right more than about getting the right answer. Yeah, that's something that seemed to have been a common theme, at least today. I mean, we we were talking to uh, Travis Walton um, earlier and uh, the director of the documentary that uh, has, is out now. And that seems to be the common theme about how some of these skeptics, um, how it really comes down to not necessarily trying to prove anything that they think for the good of science, but it's almost like they're just trying to prove it just for the good of themselves almost. Oh, uh, (laughs) that's the nature of human beings. I mean, um, 
And and you know, I pride I, gets in the way, probably. Pardon me? Pride gets in the way. Oh, often. pride, yeah. ego. I mean, it's 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 a it's a myriad of things. And I I've I've researched it, I've lived it, and I've probably been guilty of it myself. And so as I've gone through and, and learned more about um these investigations as I've gotten older, I, I really try hard not to fall victim to those things that really can lead you astray. I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, yesterday, I didn't really go into it too much, but I actually made a mistake in my initial analysis of the ritual code. I assumed that one, and assume, you know what that word, <laughs> you know what that means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I assumed that one of the key numbers was the number eight. Now, eight is an important number. It is the number of the deity, and it does connect with the uh, the Kabbalah and the Tree of Life and all that. But um, actually, the number that's on the stone, when I was going through the confirmation codes and I looked at the, the runic G letter, there were only seven. But I took another symbol that looked identical to it. And instead of having a dot, it had two slashes. Well, that's close enough, right? No, it wasn't close enough as it turns out because the confirmation code in the Torah is the number seven. And really, I mean, I was honest about that eighth character that I wanted to use. I thought, well, this, this is probably the eighth one. Well, it wasn't eight, it was seven. So I kind of fell victim to, um, uh, I don't know. I guess I'll give myself a little bit of a pass, but but I should have trusted the carver and I should have gone with what was on the stone. The seven were there and I was, that's yeah. all I needed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sometimes, yeah. I mean, sometimes, you know, small mistakes can, can be made. I mean, by anybody. It's just, yeah. a, it's, 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 there's, there's people like out there that like to take the small mistakes and, and blow them up and say that, you know, you, you, gee, does you that don't happen? What you're talking about. Does that happen? <laughs> My gosh. No. And you know, and, and it's true because in this arena where we're fighting an uphill battle from the get go. Yeah. Um, and it's weird because in the in the world that I work in, my word is gold. If I say something, people just accept it. But and but I have evidence to support what I say, and I won't say something unless I have that evidence. But uh, in this arena, it, it, it's completely different. You can have the the strongest case, and you've got people out there that'll just find a way to tear you down. And what they're looking for is any tiny little thing. To it's kind of like lawyers on the other side of an argument. You know, they'll they'll take nothing and turn it into something. And this is what a lot of these people do. And it's really unfair when you think about it because they end, you end up with all this bluster and time wasted talking about something that quite frankly, in most cases is irrelevant. And they want to talk about this one little thing they think is going to trip you up. Well, what about the 99 other things here that are amazing oh, and wonderful? The thousand other things yeah, that are around. Yeah. yeah. So, but it's, it's the, it's the world we, we live in, right? Yeah, it's true. And especially, I think, too, you being on television, it's like, you know, you become a bigger target then. Oh, yeah. And I think, too, also that people um, once, you know, and it can be a double-edged sword, but once once you're on there, it's like all of a sudden people think you lose your credibility somehow. Like you lose that that, (laughs) – you you lose that education – that you that you gained, <laughs> like people. I think people actually perceive that. Well, you know? I well, I think some people do. I think in the other in, in on the other hand, there are some people that think that hey, you've 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 got a television show, you must know something. Yeah. But but you know, unfortunately, I think television itself, especially 
uh, cable television is 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 going downhill fast. I have no no other way. Oh, we've we've noticed. Oh yeah. my god, and and it's it's like. <laughs> You know, they don't want to do intelligent television. And I'll tell you what's driving it is money is driving it. There isn't the same amount of uh, cash flow that there once was for cable television because uh, people that are watching it don't have money. They can't pay for Netflix or Hulu or some of these other um, content-driven um, outlets that, that you pay for. Um so because that, that the, the advertising dollars are shrinking, the quality of the television, they just can't pay to, they don't want to pay for travel. They don't want to pay for archaeological digs. They don't want to pay for experienced talent. Right. Um, it's easier just to take a bunch of unknowns, a bunch of everyday people, put them in a scenario and turn the cameras on and just, you know, it becomes about the dynamic between the individuals. It's not about what they're doing. And so... That's something ironic too, is that, uh, the best programming in my opinion would be like PBS and that's just a free channel. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they do it, they do it differently. And I'm, I'm hoping that we'll, uh, some of the stuff that we do in the future will actually be on PBS We're we're hoping. So we'll see. Um, I think that's, it's funny. Um, I was told by some people in the industry, they said people on the East and the West coasts, are the ones that will um, like um, intelligent content. They said the people in the middle of the country, uh, it doesn't appeal to them. And I'm like, I live in Minnesota. <laughs> but um, yeah, there is a certain demographic, I think, that that um, when you go to certain places, I, I think you can do some generalizations. Obviously, you can't you can't say that's that's the universal thing, but... Man, it's just things are just changing so fast right now. It's it's a yeah. it's a crazy world. And every day, mm-hmm. uh, I wanted to ask what uh, for you know being on America on Earth. You know, what was your favorite um, to work yeah. on on that show? Favorite episode? Well, I'd say one of my favorites was was the Rockwall because the one in Texas. Yeah, the one in Texas yeah. that you know there were so many people that were so fired up about this episode, and they were watching it. And and the production company when they edited, they did they did try to build up, um, sort of the angle that I was going to say it's it's real. I knew when I walked walked on site and I looked at that thing instantly I knew it was natural but we still had to go through the investigation we still had to go through the process of testing and you know I wasn't I, I thought I thought the um, I can't remember who the geologist was at the University uh, of Texas he was great and by looking at the uh, magnetic fingerprint of each of those rocks was a brilliant way of making that determination and I, I, to me, it was it was simple, it was straightforward, and it was conclusive. But then when we said that it was natural, everybody was in, a lot of people were outraged. They said, "Scott, I I I thought you were into pre-Columbian contact." I go, "I am," <laughs> but I said, "This right. is not one of those times." And they got mad at me. I said, "Hold on," I said, "Nobody wants this to be man-made more than me, okay?" But it's yeah. not. And and um, but you have to step out of that. And be a scientist. No, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm a yeah. scientist Just as look much at it objectively as yeah. much as I can bring science to these discussions or these investigations that we do. I, that's that's my job. That's what I do. And if we generate enough data, where I feel like, as I said in my talk, if if I could testify in a court of law under oath, uh, I will do that. But if I don't have enough evidence, 
The answer is, I don't know. Now, people get pissed off when I do that. Well, I'm sorry. Um, I'm not going to make it up. I'm not going to gamble. I'm not going to take a risk. I'm going to draw the conclusion I feel is appropriate to draw. Because as I said, I am still a licensed geologist. I still work at my old job. And uh, I take that very seriously. And it's no different when I'm doing America on Earth. I still had that in the back of my head. Yeah, integrity is important. Well, you know, there's people attacking my credibility and my integrity every day uh, on these things, but uh, what that tells me is we're doing a good job, because if they had the ability to attack the evidence, that's what they would attack. But since they can't, they attack me. Mm-hmm. And that's an age-old tac- tactic of the skeptics and the debunkers and mm-hmm. and uh, the people that don't have any evidence and, and, and that disagree with you. And they don't believe. And I always say to people when they start talking about beliefs, well, I believe the rune stone's real, or I don't believe the rune stone's real. It's not a matter of faith. It's a matter of evidence. Yeah. So let's, let's, you know, don't tell me what you think with all due respect. Show me your evidence. And and I'm like you. I mean, I believe in pre-Columbian contact. I'd say Luke does. I think Rob does as well. I Mm -hmm. I think it's, to me, it just, it, it just seems to be, doesn't seem to be that far fetched. It's but not far fetched. It's what happened. Of, but for a lot of people, <laughs> but for a lot of people, they think they say they poo poo it, and they say no, it, it couldn't have been that. Why do you think there's such a resistance to to just people accepting this idea? Well, I mean, there's no. Why is Columbus so damn important? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> well, <the question. laughs> well, I think I think a lot of skeptics would say, well, look, we've already accepted that Columbus wasn't the first. You know, we've got Lonson Meadows and uh, and that's true. Yeah, uh, Leif Erikson, Eric the Red, all that. And, and I think, uh, why didn't we believe the sagas before we found Lonson Meadows? Why did we? What was it treated as a myth? Um, to me, it was a pretty straightforward historical narrative. And of course it was true. There's a lot of other sites that have yet to be found uh, from a Viking perspective, going back to that time, that they were here in North America. I think the No Man's Land stone is evidence of that. And I think there's going to be more fights, uh, sites found. Um, I don't understand why people have to take an opinion that's unsupportable. I mean, they can think what they want, yeah. but to go out there and put yourself out there and say... Well, this didn't happen or the, you know, there was nobody here before. Why would you say something like that, first of all? First of all, you don't know. Um, and second of all, you don't have any evidence. You can't prove a negative anyway. So why would you say something so silly? And why is it that you're going to close the door on something that could open the door to various lines of research for all kinds of different disciplines that could be amazing? But you just, you're not interested. You're just going to sit here and categorically say this didn't happen. I mean, to me, that's dumb. It's just dumb. <laughs> I, I think some of it may be political as well. well I, I think that there's this whole yeah. thing of just like people don't want to... Um, th- well, when you talk about the Vikings and we talk about the Welsh possibly coming here, and there's people that misconstrue that and say that when we talk about pre-Columbian... Somehow they turn that into us being white supremacists. Oh, racist. Do you know how many times I've been called racist? I don't. And you know uh, what I want to say to them? Say it to my face. Yeah. It's it's like uh, where we are now in our times is not necessarily a reflection of what they were then. (laughs) Look, why is it racist to suggest that other 
cultures came here to North America. Somehow they try to twist that into saying, oh, you're, you're putting down Native Americans. Really? Yeah. First of all, <laughs> I, I mean, nobody you have to edit that out. Nobody <laughs> is more sympathetic, more respectful of Native American cultures than me. Trust me, yeah. I am. I am very close with many people in many different tribes, and I'm their biggest supporter. Um, I know that these early cultures came to this continent. They didn't build these structures because the natives were stupid and they were smarter. When did I ever say that? Yeah. I have never said that. Right. I think that there was there was uh, there was a mutual exchange of information and knowledge. I know that happened because the natives have told me that. Mm-hmm. The and believe you me, are a good example. Of that. Pardon me. The Mandans are a good example. Of that. Oh well, yeah. And what happened to them? Oh, funny. We gave them smallpox infected blankets, and they're yeah. all dead. Amazing. Funny. <laughs> you talk about your political agendas. There's right. one right there. Right. But it's just it's it's amazing to me. And, and archaeologists do this all the time. Somehow, if cultures came here, that's dissing the natives. Yeah, explain that to me, okay? And maybe these cultures that came here, maybe they learned from the Native Americans. Maybe they were the dumb ones, okay? Well, isn't that racist? And, and we, we and we know that you know, we know that they the the Native Americans they built these wonderful Indian mounds. You know, we have a right, site uh, right. in Georgia, Etowah. That's amazing. Mount, yeah, yeah. Amazing complex. You have the Cahokia Mounds in Ohio. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The Ohio Earthworks. I mean, there are right. earthworks all over the place. We've got them here in Minnesota all over yep. the place. Absolutely. And they used astronomical. Look, the natives did that. They've been doing that for thousands of years. But they do it in other cultures around the world. So when they came here, it wasn't one was dumber than the other one. They were both intelligent cultures, and they shared ideas. They shared culture. They shared their blood. And then, and the Templars did the same thing, or the Venus families is what I prefer to call them. But I mean, the resistance to this to me is borderline crazy and insane. And, but, but I don't believe that these people are that stupid. So that tells me that there has to be some type of either political or religious agenda. Yeah, I'd say that, yeah, I'd yeah. Say you're right. Yeah, and and you know, too, it's just it's it's just not as mm-hmm. as someone that enjoys history, I'd like to find a way of of a coherent history of like you know these things are not mysteries. This happened. <laughs> People use this continent as a refuge. Columbus changed things in the way that he finally had He was used as a political tool as yeah. all he was to justify uh, the aspects of manifest destiny. It was a political agenda and and it's look our founding fathers were great men and and what I said at the at the panel discussion I meant yeah. but we're not all perfect. You guys aren't perfect. I'm sure as hell not perfect, and neither were they. As much as we want to put them up on a pedestal to be these perfect human beings, they weren't. Um, nobody is. So, you know, you have to look at all these questions in context and in, in balance. And uh, it, it's difficult. It's, it's hard. But it's even harder when you have people with closed-minded um, agendas that um, try to shut that process down. And I won't put up with it. I, I simply won't. And that's why I'm happy to, to talk to anybody about this, you guys, anyone. And, and I'll say the same thing to everyone else. And I think we need, and I'll tell you what, part of it is, is just getting the word out. Um, I talked a little bit about Wikipedia. 
you go on the Kensington Runestone, you won't see my name mentioned. You won't see um, any reference to my work. I mean, this isn't bragging. I've done more work on the Kensington Runestone than anyone in its history. And my name's not mentioned. Look, I could fall down the stairs and get one thing right, but you you talk to the skeptics and it's like, I can't even pronounce my own name right. <laughs> it's and, and it's, They're sanitizing these websites. And I know who's doing it. Doug Weller over in England is the guy who is basically, um, you know, babysitting all these pre-Columbian sites. Anytime somebody puts something on, they take it off. I mean, it's Uh, ridiculous. uh, It's absolutely insane. It is. But that's what's going on. And the public needs to know about it. And the more the public becomes aware through venues like this, uh, the more people are going to go, hey, wait a minute. I get this. What the hell's wrong with these guys? And it's like politics. The more people get involved, the more they stand up. um, That's when real change happens. When we sit on our hands and do nothing, it's the same old BS. And that's why why I made this jump to television, because I wanted to go to the people. I'm not going to sit and argue with these clowns, because they're not honest. (laughs) They're not legitimate. Quite frankly, they're not smart enough. Yeah. So let's go. There's, there's a lot of smart people out there that are just everyday people. Yep. They can figure it out. Why can't these so-called common sense and logic? Yeah. I mean, it's what it takes. It's not yeah. rocket science. It's not magic, man. I want to ask you um, real quick about what do you mean by Venus families? Why do you use that? The term? Venus families are the, uh, the people that go back in time. They are the bloodline uh, physical uh, descendants of some of the leadership of these these orders. I mean, you know, Jesus and his family members, and um, the people that were involved in uh, the cultures, the high cultures that were um, part of the, these monotheists that I talked about in my lecture, and their descendants that were trying to create, um, you know, a more balanced world a more balanced lifestyle. And you see these families throughout history as you go through time. And it seems like they're just, they have their hands in all the important events that happen. Um, you know, people see, tend to want to focus on the Da Vinci Code aspect with Jesus and his family members, but they were part of it. And many of those bloodline descendants are alive today. Um, I don't think that they can perform miracles. I think they're just like the rest of us. Heck, you guys could be too. But but there are certain people that are the leadership of these families that have been involved in some of the important projects throughout history. Yeah, that's yeah. And one other thing from your presentation I found interesting too was the the role of the Cistercians. Cistercians, yeah. That was very fascinating. Yeah. You want to read, I mean, I never thought that uh, when I was younger that I would be Reading about monks, <laughs> I, just, I, I just never thought, first of all, that it would ever happen, and second of all, that I would find it as fascinating as, as it is. But it, again, you know, like I said yesterday, I, I followed the evidence trail, it went right to them immediately, yeah. and uh, to the Templars. Well, they were Cistercians, they just served a different function. So, um, you know, again, it wasn't, it wasn't rocket science, it was an easy trail to follow, it went right there. Yep. And I can tell you this, all those pieces that I talked about, they all fit. And that's when you know you're on the right track when you're doing a forensic investigation. That's what I've done for 31 years. That's, that's all I do every day is forensic investigation. So I know how to do it. <laughs> well, Scott, we really appreciate you yeah. coming back. I know you've, time is short. I know you got to get going. Yeah, I've, I've, but, I've got uh, some. 
Thank you so tonight. much. Um, it, w- First of all, is uh, American Earth going to come back? No, nope. American Earth is done. It's done. Yep. It's um, look. It was a great run, and I'll tell you what. Uh, our last two episodes were the highest rated episodes of all three seasons. The last episode we did was the highest rated episode by far. So if you're going to go out, you want to go out on top, and we did. We had another season all teed up, but um, all I know is when one door closes, another one opens up somewhere else. So that door is opened, so stay tuned. Excellent. (laughs) All right, guys, thanks for having me. Thank you. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Save big money on your outdoor project now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals.